So tonight, we're going to be in chapter 15 of Kings. That's where we're going to start. And as we come to the historical book of Kings, we were moving forward from Solomon. Solomon has stepped into eternity. The kingdom of Israel was divided after he passed away in 931 B.C. His son Rehoboam reigned in the, the southern kingdom with Judah in the absorbed tribe of Benjamin. And then Jeroboam, one of his most uh, diligent and ambitious servants, reigns over the ten tribes in the north. Jeroboam would reign for 22 years in the northern kingdom. He was evil. He did evil. Everything about him was evil. And he's the first of all the evil kings of the northern kingdom. There was never a good king in the northern kingdom. They all did evil. So about 300 years they're all, or 200 years, they're always evil. They never was a good one. So it's easy to remember the northern kingdom, all the kings are bad. And when we look at First Kings, the book is really focused on, and Second Kings, the northern kingdom. When we get to Chronicles, it's focused on the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. But we, they do get crossover because they're interconnected, the kings, but the emphasis is the northern kings. Then at the same time, so Jeroboam reigned 22 years. Rehoboam, Solomon's son in the south, reigned 17 years so that a parallel reign and they were at war and enmity the entire time so now we're moving forward from them we looked at three chapters last week and we covered both of them there really was nowhere to go when those guys were in power it's just bad in the north it's bad in the south and it's it's kind of like there was no place to really find a reprieve during that time other than your personal relationship with the lord and trusting in him through it all but tonight as we go forward we we get we start with the kings a couple kings of judah and then we'll really shift over to the king's of the north, and then we'll end up with Elijah. So we pick it up in chapter 15, verse 1. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the north, the son of Nebat, Abijon became king of Judah. So now Rehoboam has passed away, and this is his son. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the granddaughter of Absalom, Abishalom, and he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. You know, of course, his father David is his great-grandfather. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him by establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him in the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And of course, that's a reference to when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then she got her preg- he got her pregnant. Then he killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men. And it's a great blemish on David's life, and it's referred to here. But we do get this parenthetical thought that even though he had such a horrible event in his life, it doesn't really define him because apart from that, essentially, he obeyed the Lord and the commandments. He didn't set up high places to idols and false gods. He, he walked with the Lord apart from that matter. And there was war, verse 6, between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. So Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. So even after Rehoboam died, Jeroboam in the north continued conflict with the replacement son, Abijam. The, the, the civil conflict continued between the northern and southern tribes. Verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years. So this is a long reign, right? 41 years, a long time. His grandmother's name was Makkah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons. So those are the homosexual prostitutes, the Kedeshim, and he banished them from the land, and he removed the idols that his father had made. So he removed all those things that Solomon had put up and Rehoboam that came before him. He also removed uh, Makkah, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. So she had made some kind of a sexual image that was there where everyone was doing their prostitution with their false religion worship. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all of his days. So these high places, we read about this. Solomon introduced them to us. And actually, there's a couple high places referred to favorably uh, under um, Samuel the prophet and others. Before the tabernacle moved to 
Jerusalem to the Temple of Solomon, there were these high altars, and they, were, they don't necessarily mean on a high hill because there's a record of them being in the valleys as well. But they were altars, and before the central place of worship, there was offerings to Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel, on these altars. But then there were many other altars that were built for offerings to the pagan gods and the false gods. And so the term was used favorably initially and then disfavorably. And because it says here, nevertheless, um, it says that his, his, he was solid, but the high places were not removed. But nevertheless, his heart was loyal. So it would seem that this is one of the blem- This is like the only real blemish on Asaph's life. There's actually one more we'll get to that he didn't remove these. So he went for he, he removed. You know, he, he, he almost forget about Asaph because Hezekiah and Josiah, who come up later, are so amazing. And Jehoshaphat who comes after Asa is fantastic. But you almost, at least for me, I almost miss Asa in my heroes of these kings in the south. He's a good king. The summary of his life is good. Chronicles tells us the summary of his life was good. But we're told God had a real blessing upon his life. And, you know, it says his heart was loyal to the Lord and God honored that. But this is the one thing he didn't do. He, you know, he went after these things, but he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm just For whatever reason, he didn't quite close the deal. He, he didn't quite fully do what could have been done. Verse 15. He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. So this is awesome because remember we talked about David gave Solomon all that wealth. Solomon used it to build the temple. Then Solomon dies. Pharaoh comes up, takes everything, the gold shields, and it's a retraction, so Rehoboam has bronze shields instead of gold shields. We talked about that last week. But now Rehoboam's passed away, and then Abijam rose up, Asa's dad. He passed away, and suddenly now um, Asa takes the initiative, and he gives his own gold and silver to the things of the Lord. Yeah, you know, like, like David said, I'll not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. And now we see Asa, this is one of the things that makes him a good king, is that you know, you can talk the talk or you can walk the talk. And he, he put his resources where his faith was, and it's worth noting. Verse 16. Now, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. We'll get to Basha in a while. So there was war between Asa and Basha, the king of Israel, all their days. And Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come into Asa, king of Judah. So what Basha did from the north after Jer- Jeroboam died is he... He, he eventually built this barrier so people couldn't cross between the territories, and he tried to sort of starve them out, like build a front and starve them out. That's what he did. Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was in, left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house, and he delivered them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Timuron, the son of Hizion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as there is between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. It's just how, it's always about money, isn't it? Like, this is how it works. So he's going to offer Ben-Hadad more money than Basha offered him, and he had probably had more money to offer. And so we're going to switch allegiances, just like European kings have done for a thousand years or more, even to the present day. Verse 20. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel in the north. He attacked Ajon, Don, Abelbeth, Maka, all at Chinnereth, with all the land of Naphtali. That's way up in the north by Lebanon. Now it happened when Basha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Tizra. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted. And they took away the stone and the timber of Ramah. So all the resources that uh, Basha had brought to build the siege and cut off the, the border. They claimed it, which Basha had used for building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. So he just took the, the construction materials and said, hey, you know, we're not going to let it go to waste. We're going to build a couple cities for us in the south. That was the plan. It's actually pretty practical and common sense if you think about it. Verse 23. The rest of all the acts of Asa, all of his might, all that he did, and the cities which he built... Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. So Esau rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. 
So these, these verses right here, these 24 verses, are these two kings of Judah and the conflict, the ongoing conflicts with the kings of the north. Esau, we're told about this disease in his feet. The Chronicles gives us a better record of it. And God actually afflicted him because he had trusted in the Lord. He'd had a great victory over the Ethiopians. There's quite a bit more in his life, a quarter force in Chronicles, where he's the emphasis, not the northern kings. And he had great victory, but in his old age, instead of trusting the Lord, when Basha came against him, he trusted in the wealth that he had, and he took the wealth that belonged to the Lord and bought the king of Syria's allegiances military-wise, and for this the Lord punished him and held him accountable and struck him with the diseased feet and the calamity that he had. So he didn't have a good ending. But the summary of his life by the Holy Spirit in both books is that he was a good king. He reigned 42 years he was a great politician, and as a whole, he, he brought blessings on the land. Like, he got a lot done. He was good, and he didn't tolerate nonsense. But in the end, he was his own undoing to, to not trust in the Lord in the latter chapter of his life. Which, of course, for all of us, yet again, is a good exhortation that we want to grow stronger in our faith down the stretch. We want to go deeper in our walk with the Lord. And we want to expect even greater things from the Lord in our final seasons of life than we ever did in our youth. Because we should know the Lord more in the latter than the beginning. And because we know the Lord more, we should be more gracious, more optimistic, and more filled with faith for the kingdom and the faith, hope, and love that's an anchor to the soul. Amen? Yeah, I do. it's always one thing that's always hard about reading about the kings and chronicles is so many of them don't finish strong. And it's like, it, there's, there's something sobering about getting old. Not just like how young people think 60 is old, but being 61, I don't think 60 is old, but like, like mid-80s old, 90s old. There's things where you just like, you just, but you know, you, we were just talking about Franklin Graham earlier in Operation Christmas Child. You look at Billy Graham and how he was in his late 90s and just so strong in the Lord. And, and that's, that's our goal as we get older. Now, this, the focus now goes to these six kings from the north that bring us to Elijah. So we're, we're like a little road trip right now. We're driving through West Texas. We're, we're on a stretch right now. These are on our exits. We're going to see these little towns, these six kings. There's not much about any of them that's really appealing. There's a couple things of information I'll address. But as a whole, these six kings stand between us and Elijah, and we're getting to Elijah tonight. So we pick it up in verse 25 of chapter 15. Now... Nabah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. So here's a short reign. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the sin by which he made Israel sin. Then Basha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha killed him at Gibeonoth, which belongs to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibeonon. Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it was so when Basha became king, when he killed everyone, that it was so when he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. Now, this was prophesied last week with the prophet that God sent to the altar there and spoke to Jeroboam. And so it was when he became king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that could breathe, that, that breathed until he destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah, the Sholonite, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger that he did. Now the rest of the acts of Nabad and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. See, none of these, these, these northern kings, they never had peace with God, so they never had peace with anybody. They're, they're, they're besieging the Philistines. They're fighting their brethren in the south. They're just those guys. Verse 33 takes us into chapter 16. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, became king. And, of course, that's the end of Jeroboam. The entire family is cut off. It's the end of that dynasty. So Bashan, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel and Tizra and reigned 24 years. So see, Basha is a key player with Asa because Asa lived for, reigned for 42 and Basha reigned for 24. So these two guys, you know, they're like two political leaders with a share of border and they're at conflict with each other the whole time and no one's going anywhere. 
Like some, some kings and presidents have short reigns and short runs when you study human history, but sometimes you get a couple guys, they're running for decades, and they hate each other and their neighbors, and they're always plotting and in each other's crosshairs. And that's how it was with Basha and Asa. He reigned 24 years. Verse 34 says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. So he's a whole other dynasty, but he's doing the same thing. The golden calves, the high places, just everything wrong and evil, contrary to God's word. And remember, Israel isn't a covenant with God. They're not like the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites or Syrians. They're the people of God. So it's like when the church is just like the world. And like Jesus said, when salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be trampled. And this is just a really bad look for people of covenant at this time. In fact, we're told last week they did worse than the people that got expelled from the land when they came in and he gave them the land 400 years before. Then the word of the Lord, chapter 16, verse 1, came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha. So here's his prophet Jehu, and he says, Inasmuch, this is the word of God to Basha, Inasmuch as I lifted you up out of the dust and made you rule over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins, surely I will take away the posterity of Basha and the posterity of his house. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Basha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. fields. So this is the worst thing possible. Same thing for the dynasty of Jeroboam. It's the same end for the dynasty of Basha. It's just when the dogs eat you in the city and the birds in the field, it's not a proper burial. It's dishonorable. It's what you bring. Now, the rest of the acts of Basha, what he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Basha rested with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah. And then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And also the word Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hananiah, against Basha in his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord and provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam because he killed him. So see, Basha was used by the Lord. God just let Basha do what he would do. And as part of God's plan to bring judgment on Jeroboam, but in being the tool of wrath of God on Jeroboam, Basha didn't even recognize the need to not repeat the same thing. And so he repeated the same thing. He didn't learn the lesson, even when how God allowed him to use that way, he didn't learn what he needed to learn. He repeated the thing. It's like when you watch someone get chastened for their folly and foolishness, and you do the same thing, or we do the same thing. It's just If we can learn from other people's mistakes, it's always better than learning from our own. It saves us time, it's more efficient, and it keeps us going forward. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, so remember, he reigned 42 years. So in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became the king over Israel and reigned two years in Tirzah. Now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Then it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Basha, did not leave one leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, by which they sinned and by which they made Israel sin, in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So thus ends the dynasty of the house of Basha. And just it says that they provoked the Lord with their idols. And even if you got lost in the law of God and the Torah, how lost can you get in the Ten Commandments? Right? Like, I mean, I, read, I get if you can't read all Leviticus and you can't read Numbers. and I mean, but if you just read Exodus 20 and the given of the law, the Ten Commandments, those first four all deal vertically. You have no gods before the Lord and you'll make no idols or graven images in his, in his image. Like it's point number two of 10 things that you should never forget when you're Hebrew in a covenant with God in the Old Testament. But you know, people just, eventually when you reject the truth, you just somehow find a way to live with it. And that's why the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that people get seared conscience and seared hearts and they're given over because they know what the truth is, but they reject it and their conscience condemns them and eventually they can't. It's so sad. It's the end of that dynasty. Verse 15, verse 15, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri, 
had reigned in Tirzah seven days, and the people were encamped against Gibeoth, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired, also killed the king. So all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel went up with him from Gibeoth, and they besieged Tirzah. And it happened when Zimri saw the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. He committed suicide. Because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, and the sin which he committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Every life has so much great potential. It's just, it's hard to read about people who had, each one of these kings of the north, these six kings, had a chance to just make it right with the Lord, do the right things, break the cycle, break the cycle of their family, break the cycle of their culture, read the word of God, believe the word of God, look to the Lord, apply their lives to walk diligently with the Lord as David had, because they were all eventually would look toward David. They're all compared to David. And it's just, well, actually they're compared to Jeroboam, but ultimately they're compared to David as a positive example. And they just, they just never, you know, so few people, and I hope you're the people that make really good decisions with our lives. Being here tonight's a good decision. Listening to this Bible study is a good decision. Gathering on the word of God for three chapters is a good decision to hear it and, and to apply it. But when you read about these evil kings, and I've been reading about them for 35 years, you just think, why, why, why? And they're just really an exhortation that just no excuses. Just, they all had their opportunity. And the, the ultimate thing with this guy is just like, it's just better to rise up with the Lord and face the challenges of the day, even on the worst day in the human experience. I mean, Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us. So even on the worst day, they're coming to... They're, Repent for, the, repent for the treason. Commit yourself to the Torah. Say the Shema. Do all that stuff and say, if I live, I live, I die, I die. But to just quit and burn yourself up in a house, it's just, it's the worst of endings. But you don't have to light yourself on fire in the king's palace to have a bad ending and quit. You see so many people that just quit living and quit living from, for the Lord. We want to press into the Lord and without excuses, knowing we can't change yesterday, but knowing that today is a gift and to go forward. I don't want... I just used to say at Big Calvary, don't take your life. God will take it soon enough. Live your life. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, uh, don't tell me you're willing to die for the Lord. I'd rather hear that you're willing to live for the Lord. Dying for the Lord is fairly easy. Living for the Lord is quite difficult. Dying for the Lord is a moment of courage. Living for the Lord is a lifetime of of self-sacrifice and humbling yourself before the Lord and serving others. Yeah. Just live for the Lord. Don't, don't lose the opportunity. These guys lost it. Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Timni, the son of Gineal, to make him king, and half followed Omri. So check this out. In a divided kingdom, now we have a divided kingdom within the divided kingdom. <laughs> Does this just sound like family gatherings in the holidays or something? Does this sound like your place of employment right now? Does this sound like trying to get something done with the government right now? Like, this is just insanity. But that's what happens when the Lord's not on the throne. So, so in the divided kingdom in the north, this is what you get. You've got Timni and Omri who are competing. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Timni, the son of Gineath. So Timni died and Omri reigned. That's the way it works in the world, like two gangsters or something. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tizra, and he bought the hill of Samaria and from Shemer, from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria. So this is the origin of Samaria. After the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. That's it. that's possible, but he did. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Emet, and in his sins by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did, and the might which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab his son reigned in his place. Well, here's something about Omri that I 
learned today is quite interesting. At times with archaeology, archaeological discoveries, I mean, there's thousands of archaeological discoveries that confirm the Bible, like the Pilate inscription and all these other things. If you go to Israel, you can see a lot of these things, the Dead Sea Scrolls, confirm the prophecies of Jesus, the book of Isaiah. But they have found archaeological artifacts that refer to Omni, king of Israel, both in Moabite digs and in Assyrian digs. In the Assyrian record, there are records of Omni, that he was a revered and mighty king, and he was revered by the Assyrians. Now, remember, the Assyrians would conquer Israel in the north in a future time, but at this time, they're like, that guy's a bad dude, and that's what he is. Well, the Moabite artifacts say Omni was a bad dude and an efficient guy. So when Asa reigned during this time, and Omni was there reigning in the north, Think about this. Asa saw six different kings reign in the north when he was reigning in the south. So you just get like a new king next door, a new king next door, and they're all at war with you, and they all got a plan how they're going to defeat you, and you're like, oh, here we go again. It's another, it's another one of those guys. You know, it's the new guy. I guess guy came from treason. So that guy burned himself in the palace, and these guys are fighting each other. Ah, it'll, it'll come our way. It'll come our way. Don't worry. It'll come to us. But Omni was a, he was the, the Holy Spirit tells us he's the worst of all of them. And archaeology tells us he was powerful. There's historical records, extra-biblical historical records, that tells us this guy was a bad guy. Now, this is important because his son is Ahab. It tells us about the family of Ahab because we're, we're going to be with Ahab for a couple weeks. And we're going to be with Jezebel even longer than that. In fact, we'll probably be with Jezebel till the new year, unfortunately. I'm just giving you a preview of coming attractions. But Jezebel, of course, being his Sidonian wife, so Omni, he sets the stage, Omni sets the stage for Ahab. So verse 29 takes us right into Elijah. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. So he had a long reign, relatively speaking, some of these short ones. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So he's worse than his dad. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidon, the Sidonians, Lebanon. It was a powerful kingdom at that time. So the political allegiances like Solomon and the daughter of Pharaoh. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he switched from any worship of Jehovah straight up front, bold-faced to Baal, his wife's god. We'll study Baal later in detail. We'll get more background on him as we go forward with Elijah. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So here, this is the capital, the northern part of Israel, and they bring this idol to the place, and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And see if that's even possible, but he did. In his days, Helio of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, who set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So there's a parenthetical thought that when the children of Israel came in the promised land, there was this word spoken about when Jericho would be rebuilt, it'd be rebuilt at the expense of the firstborn, whoever rebuilt it. So this guy got the bright idea to go against the scriptures, rebuild Jericho, and it happened exactly as God said. And what the Bible says is, let God be true and every man a liar. It just reminds us, let God be true and every man a liar. God's word is true. And to the extent that we line ourselves up with his word and its truth in our worldview, our attitudes, our actions, our goals, our perspective, our vision, our reactions, what we're living for, we are going to be blessed. And let God be true and everyone who comes against his word, they're a liar. So you test all things, you hold fast that which is good. But when people sit as judge and jury of the Lord and say, well, that doesn't really apply. Like, how could that apply to me? Like, that was said 400 years ago that whoever rebuilds Jericho, their son's going to die. I can do what I want to do. I just brought, the, I just brought the, the plot of land. I can make good money building this city. I set up a market, can do all this stuff. Like, you, you just talk yourself into these reasons why you can go against the word of the Lord and think you're going to prosper. But in the end, who has resisted his will and ever prospered? Is what the scripture says. It's just there to 
When there's rebellion in the land and, and people, so you have, you have collective rebellion in the northern kingdom and the idol there of Baal in Samaria. But in the end, still, if you're the guy down there just bought this plot of land, like, yeah, I got this great business idea. I'm going to build this coastal, you know, ocean view property. Like, don't you know the moment you build on that property, that riverfront property? God said that you're firstborn. Whoever builds is going to, firstborn is going to die. I've got this. That's, oh, that's a bunch of hocus pocus. Ah, you know, my professor told me not to believe the Bible. Like, oh, you know, like, oh, you know, we came from rocks and came to life. You Christians, you know, blah, blah. Listen, don't provoke the Lord. Don't test the Lord. Don't bury your firstborn because you're foolish enough to take on the Lord and think you knew more than God. The wisest thing we can always do is let God's word judge us and definitely be careful and avoid people who sit back as judge of his word. Pray for them that they'll come to their senses because the New Testament tells us they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Now, chapter 17, Elijah, here we go. Okay, it's about time we get a superhero, like a Bible superhero, and we get Elijah here. So Elijah and Elijah the Tishbite, that, where'd he come from? All of a sudden it's like, hey, and Elijah the Tishbite. Here he is, the famous Elijah. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab. So he's introduced to us. He's like, hey, here he is. Here's the guy where he's from. And we're told, this is what he did. This, he, this guy, he walks up to the king of Israel in the north. And he says, as the Lord God Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain three years, ex- these years, except at my word. That's why he's introduced to us. He's like John the Baptist. And we're told that John the Baptist, when he came to introduce the ministry of Jesus, that he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's what the angel said to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. When Jesus is glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Moses and Elijah. Elijah represents the law, of the, the power of God, whereas Moses would represent the law of God in the Old Testament. Elijah represents signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus, when he taught, he taught the word of God, like the Sermon on the Mount, explaining everything that was intended, properly understood in the Old Testament. But Jesus, signs and wonders and his miracles, Elijah is a type of Jesus, and he does all these amazing miracles like we've not really yet seen in the Bible, other than the Jews in the wilderness and the manna and those things, the cloud by day and that sort of stuff. But, boy, it's, it's in the darkest of times, the bright light shine the brightest. And this is the darkest of times ever culturally in Israel. And here comes Elijah the prophet, whose life and legacy goes so far that we're even told before the day of the Lord being established on planet Earth that Elijah will precede it. And of course, Elijah didn't die. He was caught up into heaven, which we'll get to as we get down the road a little bit, moving toward Thanksgiving. So he speaks this word. He goes before the king, his boldness. He goes before the king and says, no rain. Accept it, my word. And that's a lot of faith. You've got to have a lot of confidence in the Lord to, first of all, go before the king like that. But you know, when we're in God's will, we're invincible. Like you and I, as followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, we, we have, God has a purpose and a destiny for our life. And as long as we're walking in obedience and we're moving toward, we delight ourselves in the Lord, and we're moving toward those things he has for us in the different seasons of life, new adventures, all that kind of stuff, you are invincible. You are invincible until the Lord says you're done. And if you live, you live. If you die, you die. But either way, you're like Esther going before the king in the book of Esther. You're invincible. You're like Daniel. You're like Meshach, Shirech, and Abednego in the fire. You're like Daniel in the lion's den. And you're like Esther before the king. If we live, we live. If we die, we die. Like when you are in God's will, there can and should be a boldness. When our life is about the Lord and we're living for the kingdom, There's a boldness when confronting evil. And there's a confidence that the Lord will give us supernaturally. He'll give us confidence. His word gives us confidence. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this is how how they overcame him, by their faith. We need to build up our faith muscles. We need to be like, to really know, like the Lord, like like Meshach and Shagrach and Abednego, when they said to Nebuchadnezzar, how God's able to deliver us from the fire? But even if he doesn't, just know we're not going to bow down to you. That's real faith. Faith to know they could be delivered from the fire and faith to know that God will let them perish in the fire and they're good either way. But they're never going to be like you. That's Elijah. Same spirit. 
Verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So there are times the Lord will say, Get away from here. In fact, there's times the Lord will even say, Hide. We see it in the book of Acts as well. Get away from here, hide. So who can know? Like sometimes we're supposed to be out front and open. Hey, no rain. And then other times the Lord's like, hey, go hide. <laughs> go here, lay low. The Lord knows. In the Bible, you, again, in the New Testament, there's a time to hide, Peter, and there's a time to be bold, Peter. You just, the Lord knows. Paul, there's a time he wants to go out there and face the Colosseum mob, and like, no, you hide. And there's a time he does face the mob in Jerusalem, and eventually he's transported with over 250 troops protecting him, going from Jerusalem to Caesarea on the coast. He just, the Lord knows. It's like Ecclesiastes, there's a time for this and a time for that. Time to plant, time to uproot, time to hug, time to not hug. Like, there's a time to hide and run, and there's a time to stand and, and be firm. I think we'll know. When, because Jesus himself said, don't worry about what you'll say in that day, the Lord will give you what, the Spirit will give you what you need to say in that day. So instead of fighting about things that we have no control over in our future, we stay in the moment of today and that the Lord God is like, hey, walk away, let it go, or stand, be firm and faithful. He'll let us know. But it comes back to, like Jesus said, abiding in him. Elijah was dialed in with the Lord. So he's there by the brook, and he's being supernaturally sustained. It says in verse 5, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. So it's like a little creek that flows into the Jordan River. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So even what he spoke from the Lord as a consequence on the land, he's affected by it because the brook dries up. He, of course, is supernaturally sustained by the ravens. And we'll get to that in the next part of this text about being supernaturally sustained. But one thing that gets our attention here that we want to focus on is the power of prayer. Because it says here that he prayed it would not rain and it didn't rain. And then a New Testament in the book of James, the book of James is the first book chronologically in when it was written by the apostles and whatnot. In the book of James, it tells us to pray. And it tells us this story of Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain. And what it tells us, this is very important because we can read the story. And even if it wasn't in the book of James, I love when the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, right? It's beautiful. It's just like, wow, it's like a, like a, like a, it's like a one-two punch, right? This stands on its own right here. This stands on its own. And without James, I'd say, you know what? This tells us we need to pray. But in case we think that Elijah's prayer has something more than our prayers have, we're told in the New Testament to the body of Christ, universal in 2,000 years of church history to this day, that he had a, he's a man with a nature just like us. He's not a superhuman. He's just like us. He's like the single mom raising kids on her own. He, he's like the dad whose wife has passed away. He's like the teenager trying to figure out what he's going to do in life at 18. He, he's every human being saved by faith in Jesus Christ and under the blood. He is our example. And what he's an example of is the power of prayer to move heaven and earth. The power of one person on planet earth who loves Jesus, who is willing to stand in the gap, because he said through Ezekiel, I look for someone to stand in the gap. The person who wants to spend time with the Lord like Mary at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you. You will ask what you will and it will be done for you if my word abides in you. And it's like this story is a reminder to us to pray without ceasing and that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man or a woman availeth much. We can move heaven and earth through our prayer life. And this is my confidence for being older and maybe if I'm not as mobile and I'm like in a sharing a room and assisted living or something like that, that I know that I can wake up and have a prayer list and pray for, pray for people. I, I, I can be in my 80s. Well, I could pray for Brandon and Sam. Sam's early 40s and Brandon's 35. I could, I could be praying for them. So 30 years from now, I'll be 90. So Sam will be, what, 72. And then uh, Brandon will be like, you know, 65. Well, Brandon, sorry to put you there. But at any rate, I can be praying for them as they're finishing their ministries or wherever they're at at that time in their life and what they're doing. Yeah? So that's, that's how it works. See, 
having Brandon Phillips around, Pastor Brandon, you, you all love him. I mean, obviously, like, wow, Joey, you let this guy come. Like, you understand why. Brandon's amazing. And again, he was my surf assistant coach with USA Surfing five years ago and became the best of friends. But recently, he just read Effective Prayer Life by Pastor Chuck Smith. That's the first book I read when I was saved. The very first book I read, apart from the Bible. And I, I had this fresh faith, like, we could do this. I believe we could do this. And I, and I would show up with the movie Sunrise, and I believed God was going to do great things. I believe he's going to do supernatural things. I believe people are going to come forward and respond to the gospel message. And I just, I just believe that that book, Effective Prayer Life, when I would go in the Calvary bookstore for the next 30 years, that's the book I was like, man, that book changed my life. It gave me the courage of my wife to go to Virginia and start a church and just go for it. Or when I was not even 30 yet, it gave us the courage to go to Vermont. It gave us the courage to do all these things. But what the book talked about is you can move, you can move heaven and earth, you can move heaven on earth through your prayer life. And we don't have to go. This is why we print, this is why we print, uh, you know, well, it's in my other body. it's in my missionary book, but it's why we print the missionary list of where we, you know, like, we, we may not be able to go to these places right now, but we can pray for the people that are there. And our prayers are investments in eternity, and there's eternal fruit every time you and I make time to pray for, to move heaven and earth in time, space, and matter. When you and I pray for missionaries in other parts of the world, when we pray for people suffering in other parts of the world, when we pray for leaders in other parts of the world, God is using us in agreement with his kingdom, and we are storing up fruit for eternity. And our effective, fervent prayers are changing the world because everything in the realm that we see of time, space, and matter is ultimately affected by the spiritual realm. And when we're praying women and praying men, we're moving. We're moving. Like Jesus said, if you have faith, you can see this mountain be moved. And it might be hyperbole, but still, the idea is that you can, you, we, can, we can do great things. We, we want to wake up. We want to wake up on October 12, 2022, and believing that we can move mountains in Jesus' name. And that there's bigger mountains to move now than there were yesterday. And our faith is greater tomorrow than it is today. That's what we should be doing, because we're told we go from glory to glory. So if we're just taking in the word, we're spending time with Jesus, and we're... we're, we're we're laying siege. Like if, if Basha laid siege to Asa, how much more should we lay siege to the good, for the good things of the kingdom against the dark things opposed to the kingdom? The New Testament tells us when Elijah said no rain, that we can do the same thing. That's the point of James. It says it. We can do the same thing. We can have the same power to affect nature. Remember years ago, Pastor Chuck, they had the Karis Field. It was supposed to be 103 degrees on the 4th of July. They had this big 4th of July event planned. And I mean, it was the doom and gloom of the hottest day ever in California is coming. And it said 4th of July day. And Chuck got up on a Sunday morning and said, it's not even going to be hot. And I was like, because, you know, you, you know it all when you're on staff. Yeah, and I'm like, man, what a bummer. I spent all that money. It's going to be 107 in Costa Mesa. I'm glad it's not my party. Um, it was like 80 degrees. This whole massive weather pattern came in from the jet stream, just changed the entire weather. And, you know, Chuck got up the next Sunday a little bit like, oh. you know, like, kind of. I was like, when he came out for prayer that morning, the next Sunday, he's just like, oh, good morning. I'm like, I'm like dude moves the, the dude moved the weather. Uh, Pastor Chuck, like, he would, but like he said, he said the Sunday before, it's not going to come out. It's going to be pleasant, and it was. I'm telling you, I saw Pastor Chuck change the weather by 20 degrees in the early 2000s at Calvary Costa Mesa. I saw it with my own eyes. And how many times has God done things like that for us when we want to believe and we see Him moving that way? But we got We got to come with believing faith. And as our hearts are yoked to the Lord and we delight ourselves in the Lord, He'll show us what we're to be praying for and how to pray. And to stand in the gap. And when we pray fervently, there's just three possibilities. Yes, it comes to pass. Wait, you don't know. Or no. But if God says no, then he says no. That's an answer too. We don't have it all figured out. But sometimes you just know we ought to pray. And the Bible tells us, Jesus taught, men ought to pray and not lose heart. And and that's how we want to be. So this story of Elijah saying, ah, no rain. Do I say so? It's for our inspiration, the Church of Jesus Christ, on October 11th, 2022, because the Holy Spirit interprets that way. 
So when you leave here tonight, be reviving your faith. And I was mentioning Brandon earlier, Pastor Brandon, because he just read Effective Prayer Life. So he's running around here wanting to pray for all of us. It's like fresh wind, fresh fire, right? I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, we, we could use some of that. Because I'm kind of like this old veteran picture. You know, it's like, like, just we need a guy like, I'm going to throw hard. I'm going to beat him. You know, like, like we, need, we need guys like that around here. We need that fresh blood. But not just young blood, but fresh vision. You don't have to be 21 to have the fire of 21 when you're 61, as long as you believe God can move mountains. And that's what we want to take away from Elijah tonight. I'm looking forward to teaching on him on, topically on Saturday, by the way. There's a lot here. So let's, let's, let's go forward. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. And remember, he's talking to a Gentile here. This, she's not Israelite. The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away, did according to the word of Elijah. She and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? So obviously, you know, humanity is guilt, guilt driven. We're guilt ridden by our sins. And when bad things happen, we usually somehow feel it's God punishing us, and it's just. Really, deep down, I think we feel, most of us feel that way. But that's where we need to understand amazing grace, and this is what she has to learn. So even when her son dies, she's like, oh, this is my sin, come back to me. God's going to take my son. Verse 19, and he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on a bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, this is a prayer, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Of course, we think of Jesus with this story because we have a resurrection. We see Jesus, he resurrected three people in his ministry, including the, the daughter of uh, Jairus' daughter, who was 12, in an upper room. People mocked him. He went in there. He brought her back to life. That was an amazing miracle. The widow's son of Nain, she, he raised up. And of course, Lazarus, he raised up. This is a literal physical resurrection of a child that died. Again, even Pastor Chuck's older sister, when she was an infant, a toddler, she died. His parents ran down the streets of the Pentecostal church, the Foursquare church, and begged the pastor to pray for the child that had just died. It would have been the most incredible, just a horrific scene. We can't even imagine the scene. But that pastor prayed for Pastor Chuck's sister before Chuck was born. She was saved. She did come back to life. The parents served the Lord the rest of their life and dedicated Chuck to the Lord as Corbin to the Lord in honor of the Lord saving his older sister's life. Thus, Pastor Chuck's life is entirely dedicated to the Lord all 86 years as a result of his older sister dying as a toddler before he was born and being brought back to life by the prayers of the pastor at a small four-square church in Ventura in the 30s. Yeah. And yes and amen. Now, there's incredible provision in this story, the miracles, the ravens, the oil, the flour. Probably going to cover that on Saturday. But I want to leave us with what really gets us here, this miracle. Elijah's a miracle worker. And this miracle, again, he prayed and he raised the dead. 
So I'm going to ask myself this question and ask all of this question. What miracles are left out there in the human experience that God wants to do through us in our prayers? Because a miracle is something other than the natural realm of time, space, and matter. A miracle is God supernaturally working by his spirit above the laws of nature, like Peter walking on water, things like that, like raising the dead. A miracle is something that happens with God's divine intervention that is not possible to happen with the laws of the universe physically. It defies the laws physically that you walk on water. Or the shadow goes backwards for Hezekiah when he had requested the sign later on that we'll see in his life. A miracle is something that is unexplainable and outside the understanding of, of the physical universe of time, space, and matter. And God does miracles. We sing songs about the miracle worker. Jesus did miracles. There are miracles to be a part of, to be lived. I, unfortunately, early on in ministry, I read a book by someone I respected in ministry who didn't believe in modern-day miracles. He took the time to write a book saying that God only worked like this in times past, but doesn't work like this now. And it was really like such a downer. It was just so like, not only was the glass half empty, the glass is being spilt. I'm like, how am I going to serve the Lord if I don't believe in the supernatural and in miracles? Then it's up to me. And I had to come to the, I was like a crisis of faith about five years into my minutes as a pastor, because it was in Virginia. And this book attacked people who believe in miracles, particularly Pentecostals and Charismatics and all this stuff. And he pointed out all the bad things that they are silly things that can happen that people make fun of, you know. And I, but I, I had to come to this conclusion. And this is what I came to this conclusion. Listen to me, and we'll go on this point. I had to decide. I mean, I'm like 31 or 32. I'm 62 in just a few months. This was a critical moment in the ministry. And I had to decide, do I believe God does miracles today? And do I believe he'll do them through me? And I really just concluded that, yes, he does do miracles. That when you read Genesis Revelation, you're going to believe that God does miracles. When you look at the life of Christ, you're going to believe God does miracles. And if I'm going to lead the flock of God into eternity for the next 35 years, I better believe he does miracles. And I do believe he does miracles. And I've seen miracles. And let me say this, with the eyes of faith, you see miracles. But with the eyes of unbelief, all you see is gravity and time, space, and matter and entropy, which is death. We live in a world of time, space, and matter and gravity and entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, everything's dying. But I tell you, through the eyes of faith, like Elijah, we can live in this world that's fading away and dying and waiting for a new heaven and new earth, and we can live in this world with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we can see, we can see miracles. We can see everyday little miracles. And to, if you have the faith, you will see miracles. You will see God work this little thing where this little detail came this way, and that this note was at the right time, or this person showed up at the right time, and lo and behold, it's answer your prayers. If you're looking for miracles, you will see miracles, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But if you believe that God is on the throne and he does work this way and he does do miracles, he will do miracles and he'll show himself strong to you on, your, on his behalf, in and through you. And I can tell you, it's much nicer to be here in 35, 35 years of ministry to declare to you, I've seen countless miracles. I can't even recall them all. I even take them for granted. Because if I didn't believe in his miracles 25 years ago to guide me in ministry, I would not be your pastor here tonight. That is for sure. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that we can wake up on October 12, 2022, praying to move mountains and believing God for miracles that are just so beyond us that he's got to give it to us when we're praying and spending time with him. Let him put that on your heart. Just like, what? Yeah, that's who we serve. And we're the church and we're going from glory to glory. So be encouraged from the life of Elijah. Be stirred up and we'll see him again on Saturday night when we're here for Topical, okay? Yeah, in Jesus' name.